Like she said, I'm going to be reading Acts 2, verses 43, or 42 through 47. So the fellowship of the believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to any as they, as they needed. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food for glad and generous hearts, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lord, as we preach on devotion and our devotions as a church, we would be remiss not to recount your devotion to us, that from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, you have been devoted to finding a way to dwell with your people. So throughout the Old Testament, and now we have this new ministry, this new covenant, this new person, Jesus Christ. Through these devotions, Lord, it is him that we proclaim. For you have said that light shine out of darkness, and you have shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we're thankful for teachers as we focus this week on the apostles' teaching. We're grateful that they would take on a stricter judgment for themselves in order that we should benefit. So, Lord, help us to have grateful and generous hearts and to support our teachers Lord, in all things, the goal is to proclaim you as Lord. And without teaching, Lord, what is it that we proclaim? How can we know what it is you have done? Unless there are those that come to tell us. So, Lord, as Lance preaches this morning, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen. We can be done. We should just be, be blessed and be out of here. Thank you. Appreciate y'all reading and praying. Hey, we are in Acts, uh, Acts 2, 42, and someone uh, came up to me already this morning and went, Ugh, again? Yes, again. We haven't memorized it. We're, we're hardly living it out. And so um, we're, we're in Acts chapter 2 again, yeah. Uh, chapter 2, verse 42. And so as we, as we unpack these things, right, we're in the middle of a little bit longer and protracted series on uh, our daily devotion. So what does it look like to live out as the church, to, to truly be these, these gospel-centered, um, Holy Spirit-filled people that we read about in Acts chapter 2? Not just the end of the chapter, but also the beginning of the chapter. What does it look like when the Holy Spirit lands on a place and truly changes a community, and what is it that he's using in order to change those folks? We've started off this series a little bit out of order, and so we did so on purpose because we were launching our neighborhood groups. We wanted to have you 
you have a firm foundation on what it is that we're actually trying to pursue in those groups. It's not just coming together. It's coming together for a purpose. It's formation unto Christ in community. It's partnership for each other's spiritual good and growth. That's what we're talking about when we talk about fellowship. So those were really the first two weeks of this series. And now we come, go back a little bit and go, okay, they were devoted, though, firstly, at least in order, to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' teaching. And so um, we're going to take a hard look at that, not just this week, but also next week. But as we do, I want you to imagine yourself uh, right now in this moment to be uh, someone who is being prepared to go to war. The only problem is, as you're being prepared to go to war, um, you actually head out to battle without your weapon. I don't know about you, but like I grew up after uh, the Vietnam draft, uh, obviously, but like I always had this fear of being drafted. I think my mom was constantly fearful of like, they're going to draft you. When you turn 18, they're going to draft you, and you could be drafted, and you're just going to be drafted right in the military, and you're probably going to die. It's going to be drafted. It's going to be bad. And like, so all my childhood, I was like, well, if I turn 18, when I turn 18, I'm probably going to get drafted and die. That's what it's going to turn into. She says, I'm sorry. It's okay. It makes for a good illustration today, maybe. Uh, so there you go. But I just had a, like a, a fear of going to war, particularly I could not even imagine going into war uh, without a weapon. And so there are times where I think about like just random stuff in my front yard. If you know, I have like this, like I live across the street from the park, and I'm like, all right, if there was an invasion, what would I do to protect my family? It's not run out without a weapon. And I think uh, at the same time, and I want you to think about that, uh, I think one of the greatest um, victories, if you will, that the enemy has, has, has pulled over our eyes is to get us to think that we are at peacetime. Friends, you are not at peacetime. You are in a war, whether you realize it or not. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6. I'm going to read a little bit of Ephesians 6 so you can see the war that you're in. Whether you see it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, there is a war happening over your soul both before you come to Jesus and afterwards to get you to ultimately go to battle without your one weapon. What is the weapon? Let's just read this war, 6:12, and then I'll read a little bit here. It says uh, in Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. I want you to think about standing firm. And I want you to couple it with a parallel of devotion that we've been talking about. And then I want you to skip down in that chapter to 17. And it says, and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? And he says, which is the word of God. You have two weapons when you were at war as a Christian. It is the word of God and it is prayers. It goes on to say in 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. I can't tell you how many times I've discipled someone in this church or out of this church who think that um, ultimately the Christian life is somehow more complicated than devoting yourself to God's word and to prayer. 
We never graduate from that school. It is a constant school that we are constantly committed to. And it's in keeping with thousands of years of history of the early church that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And if that is our reality, and I do believe that we have been duped to, to think that we are at peacetime when we, in fact, we are at war, what needs to change in your personal life with this new reality? This new lens through which I hope you see your, your, your struggles in marriage and in parenting and in trying to make neighborhood group and to normalize new relationships and all sorts of things. There's something happening below the surface that we might just chalk it up to busyness or distraction or social media or whatever else, but all of that can be summarized into a war for your soul and your heart and your affection. Because if the enemy has your attention and affection, or if he has your attention, your affection will surely follow. So here's what I know. We're talking about devotions. We're talking about the fellowship. We had a lot of people in neighborhood groups uh, this last week. Beautiful. Awesome. Let's keep it going. Right? But at the same time, your devotion to God's word, it will never be enough in this room in a neighborhood group, even if you triple it up and go into a growth group. Oh, now you're a super Christian. That won't be enough. Not enough. Instead, you're going to have to own this. You're going to have to own your spiritual maturity, your spiritual growth, your own devotion. It's not just enough for a community to be devoted. You're going to have to have personal ownership over reading God's word by creating a plan, by failing at that plan, by falling two and three weeks behind in that plan, by then reading way too much in one day to try and catch up in that plan. Like, but it's a plan, and I bet you that's, a, that's better than what most of us are doing instead. We've got to take ownership. The Bible describes that ownership as devotion, and so to remind ourselves what devotion is, this is how we've defined it. There's many descriptors here, but ultimately it's this, to stick close to, remember? To hold fast onto something, to persist, to be steadfast, to persevere, and it's some examples of devotion, modern-day devotion, like when you hear they were a devoted, like you go to a funeral and it was, they were a devoted husband or a devoted wife. What do you think? You think, man, that person loved their spouse. They were faithful to them. If you have a hobby and you want to, to be devoted to that hobby, what, it, what would it mean to be a devoted to a skill set or to a hobby? Like Eddie Cruzel is showing me his base that he, he made. He's devoted to the skill set of playing bass. If you're making your own guitars, there's a level of commitment there that I don't have. He's devoted. It shows. There's devotion there, right? You're mastering something, a skill, whatever it may be. So as we get going, when anybody looks at your life, when they look at your habits online or on the weekend or in your driveway, do they see a woman or man, a student or a child that is devoted, like a faithful husband or a faithful wife to Jesus? Do they describe you as someone who's devoted? We had a partnership class yesterday, and I was saying one of my greatest fears is that my back neighbor knows I'm a pastor, and he also hears me coach my kids in baseball and softball in the backyard. And so when I yell at them, I'm like, no, that's not the way to swing. That's terrible. Quit doing that. And I have those moments. 
Yes, I do have those moments. And then he like quietly just throws the ball that we hit over in his backyard over, and he's like, okay, back here, <laughs> just so you know. Like my character is on display. Does he see me as someone who's just a pastor, and that's what I do? Or am I devoted to Jesus? It's who I am. So when they look at you and they see your habits online, like do they see that there's something missing? Like you know something's off when you go online on Facebook and somebody changes their profile from uh, their profile picture from like them and all their family to just them and their kids. Something's off in that relationship. And so you can see good things, but you also can notice, uh-oh, hope everything's okay. And I'm wondering that if people see our profile picture, if we have a lot of good things in that profile picture, but Jesus isn't there, like we're devoted to some things, but it may not be the most important thing in our relationships. And so truly what would need to change? So again, like we've covered being devoted to fellowship. And I'll just say I was super encouraged by the results of that. My prayer is that we would have even more uh, encouraging results of being devoted to the apostles' teaching, not just this week, but next week. But like I went to a first, uh, to a new neighborhood group that started out on Monday nights and it was beautiful and it was good, but there were like more than half the group that had never been into a small group before ever. Super encouraging to me. You know why? Because everybody in that room pushed through so many barriers just to get in that room of uncertainty and awkwardness, and I don't know anybody, and oh my gosh, and are they going to judge me? I mean, all the things that you go through when you walk into a, a living room, not just in an anonymous crowd, but now we're saying, I need this. I want to be a part of this. Yes. That's all right. Anyways, I'm going to get back on track. Thank you, honey. I appreciate you bringing levity to my life. I love you. Anyways, like I said, awkward in community. Um, ultimately, she's dying, by the way, inside. All right, but ultimately, like, what a beautiful thing that was for them to be committed in that way and push past all those barriers. And I hope... That if you've never read the Bible, if you've never truly taken on what it looks like to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, that you too would push past all those barriers. I don't know where to start. Man, start in the book of Mark. Don't start in Genesis and don't start in John because you won't understand the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was with God because that's all sort of metaphor. But you get into the book of Mark and immediately Jesus gets to work and starts defeating demons and I can, that'll hold my attention right there. So push past. And so again, we do apostles teaching this week. Next week, um, we're actually in a day and age where I can't assume that you think the Bible is reliable even in this room. And so we're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible next week. How, why is it that we trust this document? Because after all, it's been written by men. And after all, it's been, you know, all the things that you've heard about this document. And I'm going to debunk all that junk next week. It's going to be beautiful and good, but before we get there, what does it look like to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? Well, first, um, what we have to understand is what the apostles were devoted to. And the apostles were devoted, a.k.a. absolutely obsessed with Jesus. That's what the apostles devoted themselves to, was Jesus. But you got to first then back up and go, well, who were the apostles? In Acts chapter 1, after Judas commits his heinous sin and he hangs himself, they create a system, a.k.a. casting lots, out of three guys. They basically go, okay, 
Here are the criteria of the men that we think can take Judas' spot, and they had two criteria. One was, in Acts 1.21, I believe, it says basically that he walked with us when Jesus was here. He accompanied us in the the time of ministry when Jesus was doing all the cool stuff. He was there. But the other thing is that he was also there. He was eyewitness to the resurrection. It wasn't just his ministry and his life. It was the empty tomb. And it was the risen Jesus. And so what you'll find is that these apostles were entrusted with authority. I want you to hear that. No pastor has this authority. No pastor online or in person has the authority of the apostles. Instead, every pastor, every preacher that you respect and that you might listen to appeals then to the authority that God gave the apostles. I can't stand on any other word besides this one, which is why oftentimes you might ask me what my opinion is. You know what my opinion is? Whatever God's opinion is. So you can get mad at my opinion, but you're ultimately at some point get mad at Jesus if my opinion lines up with his. And if it doesn't, then you need to correct me. But that's ultimately where we're going. It's the authoritative word of God. And so they were obsessed, though, not just with, with the authoritative word of God. They were obsessed with Jesus And so if you just did a cursory look through the book of Acts, I counted six sermons from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 17, and then I quit. I was like, okay, I'm done. It belabors the point. In every sermon that you hear, in every conversation that you read, whether it be Paul or Peter or Philip or whomever it may be, what you'll find is that they continue to point to the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus again and again and again and again. How is it that you're doing this? Why is it that you're doing this? I don't know if you know this, but Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a heinous death, right? He rose from the, de- from the grave, and he is see- seated at the right hand of the Father. And again and again, are they just obsessed with that story? And so I think a really good example of that is actually right here in Acts chapter 2. So I want to read actually the other part of Acts chapter 2. It's Peter's sermon. You remember Peter. We've talked a little bit about Peter. He goes from hiding in the upper room, wondering if he's going to be next and crucified, to the spirit lands on him, fills his heart, and then he starts speaking in tongues where people are all of a sudden coming to know Jesus, and people are wondering what in the world is going on. Are y'all drunk? Literally the accusation. And Peter says, no, they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. What kind of people do you think we are? So if you're drinking before nine in the morning, at least Peter says, no, that's not even possible. And he goes on to say this in verses 22. I just want you to see the kind of things that the apostles were devoted to so that you can see what you can be devoted to, what he's calling us to be devoted to. In verse 22, I'm going to skip down a little bit. It says, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Now God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Are you seeing it? 
Are you seeing the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus? If you kept going down to verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He raised him up, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You see the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And this is only one example, but a prime one. They have an unabashed declaration of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. You want to talk about being obsessed with Jesus. This is everything they talked about. They also uh, re-explained um, or reinterpreted the Old Testament in a more faithful explanation. If you keep reading in verse 25, he says, For David says concerning him, you know the one that the death couldn't hold? He says, I saw the Lord always before me, quoting from the Psalms, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. It was long-standing Jewish history for them to think that that was David. And Peter looks at that tradition and says, you got it wrong, guys. He goes on to say in verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He goes on, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The whole point is he is seeing the Old Testament now with new Jesus gospel-centered lenses to say what you thought was coming actually came in the person of Jesus. And so he reads the Old Testament with a new lens of the New Testament, and then now we get to see now the New Testament through also the lens of the old, and it all comes together with one beautiful story that finds every promise that God ever made, finding their yes and amen in Jesus the Christ. It's fascinating what they did over and over again. They went through painstaking detail to ensure that we know who the Messiah is. In verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, yes, Master, and Messiah Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, giving them personal responsibility. He goes on to say that this truth, indeed demands a response. And so the people say, what must I do? And Peter goes on to say, repent and be baptized, be immersed, be known by a new name of Jesus and not you. Live for someone else's kingdom and not your own because your own is really small and Jesus is eternal. You see how obsessed they are? The apostles, if we're going to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, we got to then know everything is pointing to life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, you might be thinking, why are you, like, keep saying those four things? Because we only think about life and death, his miracles, and the cross. When you think about the symbol of our, of our religion worldwide, what is it? It's a cross. And I think a lot of that has to do with the practicality of our true symbol of our religion, which is an empty tomb. Like you can't wear an empty tomb around your necklace. It's really hard to do. 
We can, we can, so there's, there's this practicality to all of that. And at the same time, the true symbol of our faith is an empty tomb. It is a throne where Jesus sits, for the ascension truly is real, and it matters. They were obsessed with this. Now, if we had time, we would go to the Apostles' Creed and go, okay, they synthesized this as a creed later on that ultimately everything points to this very simplified version of, I, have, I believe in the Father, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in the Son, and he did all of these things. I believe in the Holy Spirit and in the, the holy universal truth, uh, church. The Apostles' Creed is beautiful and good, and if we have time, we'll read it here at the end. But everything is synthesized in that one creed. And so if I had to just challenge you a little bit, think about your life, and how would people, how would you summarize your creed? How would you summarize the things that you truly believe in? Not the things you affirm with your mind. I'm talking about the things that you live out. I can say I believe in the power of prayer, and then I look at my prayer life and I go, that doesn't look like somebody that believes in the power of prayer. That looks like somebody that affirms what the Bible says about what the, the power of prayer. I can affirm it, but I'm not living it out, and what I live out is only really what I believe to be true. So you find these apostles and you find them teaching over and over and over again. And they're absolutely obsessed with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, right? And all of a sudden you start to see that that apostle's teaching, the content of their teaching ends up saturating everything else in the New Testament. Did you know that Ephesians uh, is broken up into two parts? If you don't know this, it'd be good for your reading this week. Ephesians 1 through 3 is doctrine and theology. And what is it that we are supposed to believe about Father, Son, and Spirit? And it's rich and it's beautiful. And then Ephesians 4 through 6 turn out to be, okay, now that we have this knowledge, now that we know these things, now that we believe what Jesus has done, how is it that we are to live in the church? How is it that we are to live with one another? How is it that we're supposed to build our marriages and parent and manage our households and that, that spiritual war that you're waging? How is it that we're actually supposed to make this work? Romans is the same way. Romans 1 through 11, theology. 12 through 16, practice. So everything they wrote about wasn't just head in the sky theology. It was you're supposed to live a certain way because God did some really amazing things. And this saturates everything in the New Testament. So if you just had to boil it all down, it's all about what Jesus did for you, which is what we call the gospel. Now, gospel is a weird word. It's a Christian word, but it wasn't always that way. In the context of first century Rome, um, gospel was something very common for them. And so if you think about what it meant historically, it's this. It's um, kings would go off to war, and the people of the village, I almost said Santapoco, welcome back, Wiley, Santapoco, um, but the, the kings would go off to war, right, and the people in the village would be waiting for that king to return from war. They didn't know. There was no Facebook. There was no Zoom. There was no, no live stream from the front lines, and so they would go off to war, and the people in the village were wondering, is our king going to come back, and there's going to be peace, or is the enemy coming back, and we need to gird ourselves up here in, in our city? And so what would happen is that the king would hopefully send back a messenger ahead of either the victory or the defeat, 
And that messenger would come back and they'd be booking it, right? There's a watchman on the wall and they're looking out and they see the messenger coming back and they're wondering, is it good news or is it bad news? And the messenger would come back if there was victory and they'd be yelling, good news, good news, which is the Greek word for gospel, gospel, euangelion, gospel, good news. We won. The king's coming back, baby. There's peace. So when we think about the gospel, do we think of that? That there has been a victory won and secured on your behalf? We're not out at war. We're, 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 the, we're the scared villagers wondering what's going to happen. Actually, you know what? We're not the scared villagers. We are at war. I said that in the beginning. The problem is we're on the other side. We're, the, we're his enemies. So we're captured, we're brought in, and you go, whoa, 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 hold up. I'd rather be a villager. I know you would. Me too. But Colossians 1 says this. We're talking about the gospel summarized in a couple of verses. And you, who once were alienated. You, you were close? No, you were alienated. You were way away from him. And hostile in mind. You were his enemies. In your mind, you hated him. You hated God. You hated his righteousness. You hated the standard. This is before Jesus. Remember this. Don't get over this fact that at some point in your life before Jesus invaded your army, you were standing against him him, and going, no thank you. I don't want your reign and rule. I want my reign and rule. Hostile. You got that? Now, I've preached this passage many times over the years both in foreign countries and right here in Sugarland, And I gotta tell you, in the foreign countries, it was far greater received than right here in Sugarland or Richmond. It was actually in a Richmond church that I preached, and I remember someone in the front row and going, now you realize before you knew Jesus, you were his enemy. And he had a really big wide brim hat on and he was sitting in the front row and he goes, no, I do not believe that. And yet right here it says, You were enemies. You were hostile in mind. That's what you do. In your mind, you were his enemy doing evil deeds. Not only in your mind, your life just looked evil. You're going, well, I don't know. I was a pretty good guy. I was a pretty good gal. No, 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 no. Isaiah's clear. Your righteous deeds were filthy rags to him. Enemies. Hostile. Oh, but that's not where he left you. See, you were at war, but he came. Verse 22. And he is now reconciled you. That word reconciled is exchanging hostile relationships for friendly ones. You ever reconcile with someone? You ever just had an enemy that you're like, oh man, if I ever get the chance before Jesus, I will take you out of the legs. And then all of a sudden you get a little closer to them and you realize, man, they're not so bad. Or they apologize to you for that heinous thing that they did. And you bring them in and all of a sudden you're friends with them and everybody around you goes, you're friends with them? Yeah, yeah, man, we're good now. We're at peace. We've been reconciled. We've been reconciled with Jesus. He goes on. In his body of flesh, by his death, he paid for that reconciliation in order to present you and me holy, perfect, righteous, blameless, and above reproach. That is credible accusation. The enemy has no credible accusation against you anymore because Jesus' blood cleansed you from that accusation, which used to be credible. 
was sharing the gospel with someone this last couple of weeks. He's coming to end his life. And I basically boiled it down to one thing. And I said, look, here's the deal. You're going to die soon. That's what the doctors tell you. I've been asked to do your funeral. But before I'm asked to do your funeral and do your funeral, I'd like to get to know you a little bit. So we're 30 minutes into this conversation. And I said, look, here's the deal. Here's what's going to happen at the end. Either you're going to pay for your sins or Jesus is going to pay for your sins. And which one's it going to be? You can pay for them forever. Or Jesus, being the righteousness of God, took on sin so that you don't have to be identified with sin anymore. I wish I could tell you that he became a believer that day, but I'm going back this week, armed with a Bible, my sword of the Spirit, headed into warfare, because I just remember really thinking I did a good job with that gospel presentation, and he just looked at me and was like, yeah, okay, great. I'm like, man. Holy Spirit, come and land and resurrect this soul before he goes and sees you forever. We are at war. We were once his enemies, and now we brought them brought to his table. 23 says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of gospel, of the gospel, the good news that you heard. Don't shift from that. Don't go away from that. Be devoted to that good news, which has been proclaimed in all creation and under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, here's the reality, right? Good example of, of, of the reality of all this is that we don't just get devoted, right, to this historical reality of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We get devoted to the spiritual reality that undergirds that and gives it meaning, just one example, you guys seen the new um, Johnny Manziel documentary on Netflix, or is it only A&M fans that do this? Um, uh, nonetheless, you watch it, and you see just really sad. It's just sad. I remember watching it play out in real life. I remember him saying some of the same things, and he said in his documentary, he goes, man, I was just a young kid just trying to live life to the fullest. Whose words are those? Not Johnny Manziel's. He's come to give us life and life to the fullest. Life abundantly? Johnny Manziel is reading that, hearing that in a Christian context, the, the Bible belt that he grew up in, and he's going, I'm just trying to live life to the fullest. And he hijacks it and makes it his own thing. To where at the end of all of that, and I pray it's not the end for him, but after he's drafted in the first round, after he's playing in Cleveland, after he's got all that he's ever wanted, his celebrity friends and everything else, what happened? Surely we have the good news of the world's gospel that if you get more faster and you succeed really well, like at a young age, then you'll be happy, right? That's what happened. No. When he got everything he wanted, he was suicidal. Because life to his fullest was not life to the fullest. And he got sideways along the way because... He got an idea in his head that was not devoted to the truth behind that idea. The gospel of this world of bigger, better, faster, stronger is a lie, all you students. And so instead, we've got to have the true good news that paints all of life in vibrant color on the, uh, and give meaning to every inch of life. So let me explain to you what I mean. If you are tempted to sin, the gospel will tell us that though we may be tempted to sin, he provides a way out, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If you, if you want to fight temptation, Psalm 119, 11 says, store up God's word. Remember that devotion to the apostles' teaching? 
Soar up God's word in your heart. You want to know how to fight sin and addiction? Memorize scripture. <laughs> and you're going, no, come on, dude. You can't do that. You can't pastor me. You can't juke, Jesus juke me. No, no, it's true. Just memorize scripture. It's right there in the Bible. If you, if you want to make sense of suffering, you read passages like 2 Corinthians 12, 19, where Jesus says to Paul, after he's pleading with his, with his Savior for suffering to go away, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness and in brokenness and in these difficult moments of suffering. You want to know God or do you want to have a good life? You can do both, but it's often through the crucible of suffering. You want to make sense of it? It's in the gospel. You want to make sense of what role politics play? I keep, by the way, sprinkling in little verses and nuggets about politics because the crazy days are coming. And I just want you to have a little bit of truth sprinkled on life between now and a year from now. It makes sense of politics when your guy doesn't win or your gal does. Romans 13, 1 says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. <gasps> How dare you? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You want to make sense of who's in charge? It's God. What about your marriage? When she really drives you crazy, when he really lets you down, how do you build a good marriage? Well, you think about all the ways you drove Jesus cra crazy. You think of all the ways that you let Jesus down, and you think about how he's loved you through that disappointment and that crazy, because you have. And if he's loved you that way, then certainly, if John 13 is true, then as I have loved you, so you should love one another, so that I can easily love her or him, because Jesus loves me through all of that. He gives me the fuel to be able to do that. How about your money? Or how about how, about how do you, is it is that you work? Well, I'm glad you asked. The gospel has something to say about that. Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Well, what about your mental state? You don't understand. I mean, you're just throwing all these verses at me, and it's got to, kind of making me feel a little anxious. Yeah, yeah, Jesus covers that. In Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, don't forget the and his righteousness and his standards of perfection, his standards for living. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Your mental state, your sex life, your social life, your social media habits, your work life, your view on politics, authority, government, parenthood, everything gets saturated by the gospel when we are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, here's what this is going to take. If you have your Bible open, just flip over to Acts chapter 5. If you see this, you can read in Acts chapter 5 that Ananias and Sapphira, they lie, they're killed. Many signs and wonders are done. The apostles then are arrested, and that's where I want to pick up in this story. Here's what this is going to take for you guys to, to, to truly believe in this stuff. You want to know what it's going to take? It's not just devotion. It's right here in verse 29. After they're arrested, they're questioned, Peter says this. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than 
man. You might be saying, well, what does that have to do with me? And why is that the answer to this? Well, go back up one verse. Matter of fact, go back up to 27. It says, and when they had been brought to them, they set them before the council. This is some of the apostles, Peter, amongst others. And the high priest questioned them, saying, now listen, y'all. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? And Peter's answer was, we must obey God rather than man. You want to know what it took for them to be such men that they could stand up and say, you follow me as I follow Christ. You want to know why people actually did that and found Jesus? It's because they were holy and completely surrendered to Jesus and his authority over their lives, even if it meant, check this, death. Now, that's some devotion right there. That is some wholehearted, surrendered devotion right there. Because you know what? The world still only wants you to like Jesus and not love him. The world still wants you to be quiet. The world still wants us to just keep Jesus hidden in your heart, but don't let, her, let him ever come out of your mouth. But Jesus says if it's in our heart, it's coming out of our mouth. So is it in our heart? That's what it takes. Wholehearted submission to God. The culture around us wants to appreciate Jesus. Man, he was good. Love him. But not worship him. If you worship him, your life will be different. Your friends and your family will call you names behind your back. They'll alienate you from the dinner table. It will happen. It's what Jesus said would happen. And yet, here we are. If we're going to be devoted, we don't just want to be admired. We want to put some things on the line in our following of Jesus. Now, this is the last thing that I want to point us to because devotion leads somewhere. It's not just that it saturates every part of life. It's that we, if, if, if we're truly going to be devoted to someone else's teaching, it means that we are students. And all devoted students grow in learning. I'm not going to go to these passages. I just want to make mention of them. But 1 Peter 2 talks about how we should crave pure spiritual milk like infants. He's not necessarily saying that they were infants. He's saying we need to be people that crave spiritual milk. That is the word of God like infants do. You ever raised an infant? There's a hungry cry that you can recognize. And there's a hurt cry that you can recognize. The hungry cry you cannot ignore. The hungry cry is loud. The hungry cry is usually at an inconvenient time. But you know what an infant is doing? They're letting you know, I can't go any longer without that milk, without my sustenance, without the thing that's going to help me grow up and get off of milk at some point, which Paul goes on to say, or excuse me, the, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, as if to say, hey, look, at one point, I want to be able to talk to you here as teachers. At some point, you should be teachers by now, but instead, you're still on milk. When are you going to get to the meat? For many of us, we've been in church for decades, if not decades, a decade, years, I wonder if the writer of Hebrews also warns that for us, that what are we doing? Are we teaching people? Are we bringing people? 
Are we saying, follow me as I follow Jesus? I'm wholly submitted to God's word as the final authority in all of life, and in so doing, you will find the ways and the person of Jesus. If there is a teacher, it expressly means that we are students and all students grow if they are devoted to the subject to which they are learning. Did you know? I have not practiced what I'm about to do, so that's a caveat. But did you know that I play guitar? Did you know that? And uh, I saw this clip this week of David Platt, and he, he, he pulled out his old uh, piano, and uh, he played a little bit. Now, if I told you I was devoted to the guitar, what would you expect of me? Is this on? What would you expect of me if I was devoted? Eric Clapton? John Mayer. Okay. Instead, I can tell you, I, I play the guitar. I can play it. And you know what I, how devoted I am to you is? Or how devoted I am to the guitar is? See how good that is? Now, one person in this room knew exactly what I was going to play when I picked up the guitar. My wife. You know why? Because this um, song called More Than Words by Extreme came out in 1990. And I was really devoted to it in the mid-90s. That's it. That's all I got. That's all I got. But I'll tell you what. One thing you're not going to confuse me in, in is being devoted to this. I can play it. Right? I mean, that's maybe a little bit debatable. But I'm certainly not devoted to it. Is this a more than words experience for you? You read it and you were a new believer, got real excited about it. You can play like two chords. You've read John, and that was fun. You made some sense of that and you believe it. Or are we devoted to where I could play Eric Clapton or John Mayer or Stevie Ray Vaughan or whatever it is that you kids play these days? Because ultimately, they're not the same. And one produces a life that we all, it's unmistakable. And one produces a life that's unmistakable probably in the wrong way. So I just leave that before you to just go like, I don't want to just be able to go up and play it half quarter of a riff in the Bible. I want to be devoted to it. I want to be able to invite others, maybe teach others some lessons here about how much joy this has brought to my life. How much fulfillment this has brought to me because I see Jesus on the, every page. We're not playing anymore. Now we're, we're singing and we don't have to think about it. It's just second nature. It's just in us. Let's pray. Jesus, help us become devoted in a way that might honor you. They might look the same, but they're wholly different. We don't want to be people that can play a quarter of a song. We want to be people that um, ultimately are devoted, and we've got a whole catalog of songs that we can play. We know the scales. We can do solos. We can do the whole thing. Not to show off, but ultimately just to show that we love you, we worship you, we honor you. 
We're not playing the same old song we've been playing for 30 years. So if we're bored in this room with Jesus, if we're satisfied with whatever surface level knowledge we have of the scriptures, Holy Spirit, convict us and lead us. And for those of us in the room that are thinking, well, okay, now I'm convicted, now what do I do? And just pick up the Bible and the book of Mark. Would you give us the courage to say no to some things this week so we might practice our devotion? We might enjoy you as we do it. In Christ's name do we pray, amen.